Hi, everyone. Welcome to this series on Sin and Salvation by Leslie Newbegin. Um, this is the fourth episode, and it's going to be discussing on the fourth chapter of Leslie Newbegin's book, Sin and Salvation, and how s the situation of sin has been produced. Um, so in the past three episodes, or past three chapters, we discuss what sin is. Um, that man is in a state of contradiction, um, how sin entered into the world, and ultimately what sin is. Um, Brian, do you mind just kind of refreshing us about these past, what we discussed um, previously? Yeah, I mean, so the last episode we talked about how um, we often think of sin as breaking the rules, but if we have the background of chapters one and chapters two talking about sin as breaking a relationship, we can better understand uh, the nature of sin and the nature of sin as this total corruption of the human heart. And there's this kind of pattern that develops. So when we think of sin, we think of things like jealousy or envy or murder or lust, right? We think that's what sin is. But what Newbegin does in chapter three is he traces out how at the root of all this sin is a fundamental distrust in God. It's unbelief that causes man to turn away from God. Um, it's distrust that God is for him, uh, and it's distrust that God is uh, the right person to put in control of the universe. But the turning away from God means turning toward something else. Because instead of God being in control, man, uh, human beings need to put something else in control. And ultimately what they put in control is themselves, right? Like uh, man puts himself in control of the world. And this produces uh, anxiety that is managed by a belief in a lie that man is capable of controlling the world and then false worship, where we start putting trust in different things to help give us a sense of security, um, to purchase security against the anxiety that's in human beings' hearts. Um, and then the result of that is we are putting our security in fin finite things, but we have infinite longings. Um, and so we uh, respond with lust, we continue to lust after these finite things, and we're given over to that lust by God. And then the end result of that, because we're lusting after finite things and we have this perception that uh, the world is, the resources in the world are scarce, uh, that there's competition for a limited number of things in the world, uh, the end result is envy, strife, and murder. So yes, like envy, murder, lust, these are sins, but these are more the fruit of sins. Uh, if you really want to understand these fruit, uh, these sinful fruit, you have to work yourself all the way down to the root, which is distrust in God. Um, and we talked a little bit last episode, too, about how if you want to undo that pattern, you have to replace the wrong root with the right root, which is Jesus's resurrection, which is proof to us that we can and should trust God. We should trust his power and we should also trust his goodness. Yeah, so I think it's kind of in interesting, or actually um, the idea of sin, um, how there's unbelief 
then there's anxiety, there's um, idolatry, and so on and so forth. Um, there is this uh, conception or idea of what sin is, um, and there's this abstraction of what it is. Um, but what's ultimately implied is that because of sin, there's actions that we do, and it can harm other people. There's consequences to it. Um, it makes sense almost that because there is sin, because there is wrongful intention of what I do or there's wrong actions, there's going to be consequences. Um, whether that be seen like presently within just human interaction or uh, between us and God, you know, every action has a reaction. It's like Newton's third lie. It would, al it would almost make sense that there would have to be um, some type of reaction or consequence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's what Nubian talks about here in chapter four. Um, he's talking about, as you said, the situation that sin has produced. Like, what is the state of the world now? And he talks about, uh, just to give a, an overview of what, what, how he addresses this, uh, he talks about four aspects of the situation of the world now. So the first aspect is that um, there is the results of sin are real and terrible. Um, and he tries to stress the gravity of the reality of sin by, by contrasting God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. So in God's work of creation, he's, God uh, simply says, let there be light, and there's light. There's no obstacle or struggle um, for a God to create. But in contrast, for redemption, uh, the picture Nubian shows us is the picture of Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling with God in prayer, his sweat falling like great drops of blood, and he cries in agony, not my will, but thine be done. So, you know, there's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with God to take the cup of wrath away from him, but in the end, uh, not uh, acknowledging to God that he does not want to put his will above God the Father's um, and submitting to the Father in obedience. That, and that, it just shows this is what it costs God to deal with man's sin. Um, to create the heaven and the earth didn't cost God anything. No, no kind of labor went into it. But to take away the sin of the world costs him his own lifeblood. And the reason why Nubian starts off this way is he's trying to stress uh, the reality of sin, uh, the concreteness of sin, and that sin could not be uh, simply deleted or uh, cleared away by thinking the right things. Right. Or, uh, it's not an intellectual problem to be solved. It's okay. a, a reality that somehow had to be borne up and dealt with. So the first point is that the results of sin are real and terrible. The second point that Newbegin talks about, uh, starting on page 34, is that sin produces something that God can't remove apart from man because the problem is man's guilt and responsibility. So um, he uses this example, like, there's a difference between sin and uncleanness. If a child's face is dirty, its mother can wipe the dirt off its face while uh, the child is sleeping. But sin can't be taken uh, taken away or wiped out of the soul like that. 
Um, because the essence of our human nature is that we are created in God's image. Everything we do is relational and bound up with everything else done in the history of the world. And something has to atone for the terrible consequences of the entire world to truly deal with the guilt of sin. <laughs> Somehow the guilt of sin has to be addressed. So that's the second way uh, that sin creates the situation in the world. So to my understanding, the example with the mother and the face, the child's face, is this idea of that, sure, you might be able to fix a specific situation um, to only like, it might just be one situation in isolation. Um, but when you look at the whole system, um, when you look at all of humanity, it's been drenched in sin. It's been corrupted in sin that even just good doings and good actions is not going to be enough to uh, cleanse it away because since there's so there's a psychological sense to it, there's physical uh, consequences to it, there's all these different consequences of sin that it's almost impossible for man himself just to fix just like that or anyone just to fix by cleaning it off yeah because and and the reason part of the reason why is that sin creates this train of consequences that even regret of the sin can't stop um and like a lot of times in our culture today like we'll try and evade responsibility for our sin by saying that we're sorry right mm -hmm. uh, but even though you say you're sorry and and to some extent you may even be able to repair the relationship you've hurt uh, by saying you're sorry there is a whole train of consequences that continues on even though you've repented right so like the example it's a, a strong example in here it's a disturbing example in here is that um, judas repented of his betrayal of jesus but that didn't stop the crucifixion right if i tell someone a lie about you right Benoit, like if i you know spread some sort of like vicious rumor about you i can sincerely repent of that but that rumor is going to still have exists. a life of yeah it's going to right. still exist it's going to have a life of its own and long after i've repented of it it will still be working out its consequences and that's just like one you know person slandering another person when you think about the whole of human history and all the wrongs we've done uh, to one another and, and in just living life in the world there's this accumulation of bad consequences that is just adding up and adding up and adding up and even my complete repentance can't undo those consequences somehow all those terrible consequences have to be dealt with so my understanding is that you can't isolate a sinful action because since there is not only does it have repercussions the action itself might have been informed by whatever system that we've been brought up by whatever idol we worshiped or whatever it is and no matter how much we can say sorry there's so many different forces before it 
before that sin occurred or that action occurred and all the things that happened after it that simple simply just asking like forgiveness from another person wouldn't be enough there needs to be something even greater um than just dealing with a certain sin be isolated yeah that's right and our tendency and this moves on to the third point uh that nubian is trying to expound on here in this chapter is that our tendency is to think about sin in individualistic terms the mm -hmm. sin of a single person like what um, i do wrong to another person right right and that's like that's that's sin because we just think of maybe the ten commandments and it's all about the things that we do to other people or to god and it's much more one-on-one -on -one. right and and we think of our individual responsibility or our individual guilt um, we don't think we're responsible for the actions of others, but our human life is lived in groups, in uh, families, tribes, nations, societies. We don't, we don't get our values from ourselves. All of us are raised uh, to have a certain way of looking at the world and of understanding what is good and what is wrong or, or bad. Uh, what are the things we should pursue and what are the things we should stay away from, right? These are things that we are taught um, and we're taught in families and we're taught in nations and societies. Um, and so there's a really, there's a real sense in which um, there is such a thing as corporate guilt, the right. guilt of an entire society. Um, Nubian has this example on page 36 where he talks about, you know, I might commit a sin contrary to public opinion around me, right? Breaking into a house and stealing jewels. Um, but, and, and everyone around me will condemn me for, you know, breaking into someone's house and stealing their jewels. But if I commit that same theft in a way that's very common, like, for example, uh, drawing a traveling allowance. So like if you work at a company, you might be getting a traveling allowance, right? Like some money to cover your travel. Um, but you actually spend less than that allowance, but you just pocket the rest of the money because that's what everyone else does. That's theft. That's still theft. And yet my conscience doesn't condemn me as severely as my conscience might condemn me if I break into a house and steal jewels. Because society has taught me that one thing is a lot worse than another, even though logically both are theft. Um, right. And so society bears some guilt for the way in which it has raised me, the way in which it has passed down incorrect values to me. Right. So you're talk you brought up the idea of uh, corporate sin so there's idea of like you know like there's a sinning we're, we're conscious of and things that we become unconscious of because you know society kind of just tells us oh this is fine or this is not the utmost importance um, which makes sense because since it's not like we can be aware of every single action like there's only so much um, like energy and so much like like amount that we can compute and understand in terms of what we're doing so right. like there are things that may just come up as unconscious and makes sense in a way um not to say that it's not wrong 
Um, but going back to the idea of corporate sin, is there also sin that's maybe even like systemic in a way? So there's the one-on-one, but then there's also sin that we participate in um, that's systemic or that involves or propagates something that's um, immoral. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, once you understand systemic sin, you can understand what theologians call original sin a lot better, right? So uh, the example in the modern day world is like all of us, <laughs> we live in this world where we are trained to really care, at least like there are certain subcultures that really care about like sneakers or shoes, like what kind of really cool shoes you have. But many of these shoes are made just like in this world economic system we have built they're built by like um, exploited workers in foreign countries who are in basically sweatshops where they don't where they're not given much dignity and they're not given much compensation Uh, many of them might be children who are making these really nice shoes we're buying for a hundred dollars plus and we participate in that system by buying those shoes right right that's that's what systemic sin is. I mean, was, yeah. right. But can you really like blame the person? Because since I mean, there's things that we might be aware of, but you know, there's other things we might partake in that we're just simply unaware of. Like, is that still sin? Like, if we yeah. didn't know, right? Yeah, it, it is. Um, each of us are responsible for participating in that system, and yet the system in itself bears a condemnation on it. Because it, it, the system itself is responsible for the guilt that it bears. That's what corporate guilt is. So sin operates on multiple levels. There's the corporate level, the level of the society itself, um, and then there's the level of the individual operating in society. And each bear their own guilt. Um, and so th- that's kind of the proper way to understand original sin. Uh, original sin is acknowledging that even newborn babies don't, start off life uh, with an equal freedom to do good or evil, Um, they start off living life in a world where the systems that have been set up uh, already push it towards evil, already push it to seeking for itself rather than seeking for others. Um, And that warps its nature to give it a persistent bias towards self-interest and towards evil yeah i mean that makes sense like we're gonna live in whatever system it may be and there's also good in certain systems like an example capitalism you know there's a lot of good capitalism can bring but then there's also a lot of things that capitalism can't solve there's a lot of good that bureaucracy can bring but then there's things that bureaucracy cannot solve and it's almost as if that there's all these different systems or these different um, corporations or different things that we live in um, that brings about evil, but we're also kind of have to balance out the good. So like, how do we, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, we can't really isolate ourselves from these systems. Like we live in them. Um, How do we, move forward from that you know like can we really escape from these systems that were brought up in the ultimate answer is 
no apart from God himself setting up a new system within the corrupt system. And ultimately, again, this is fast forwarding uh, to uh, the later sections of the book that are more about salvation. Ultimately, we believe that's what God did in Jesus. God, it's almost like God put himself into the matrix in order right. to like create this new system operating on uh, new values, his own values. And so that's what it means when we say that the church is the body of Christ. We have been joined to um, the act of God himself to create the new system. The church is meant to be uh, that new system that one day will be brought to fulfillment and totally overtake the old system, the old system of sin. So that's interesting you point out, um, and it kind of transitions into the next section, which is man cannot save himself from sin. That means that no system almost cannot save, like, there's no good idea or good system or good charity or whatever it may be that can save us from whatever corruption we see. Yeah, um, because there's not part of the human race that's free from um, the corruption of man's nature, which is what sin is, there's no part of the human race that can lift up the rest of humanity. Um, and there's no part even of a man himself that can ennoble the rest of man. And so every, every human being is fundamentally in the same situation of just being lost. So you said no man can um, save himself. Um, and I'm thinking of an example from the Bible with Abraham and Abraham believed in God that was counted as righteousness. Um, he was seen righteous before God. How do we kind of relate that and kind of go forward with the idea of sin and of salvation and righteousness? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to take away from human responsibility because Abraham, in heeding the call of God, did something commendable, which was listen to God. Mm -hmm. But Abraham, in his own power, did not know what to do, you know, to set up this new system, uh, to, to move towards uh, the coming of Christ or to prepare the world for the coming of Christ, to prepare the world for the plan of salvation uh, that would ultimately lead to Christ. Like, Abraham had no idea. God right. himself had to begin by intervening and calling Abraham. Um, so I'm not, you know, de-emphasizing human responsibility to partner with God or work with God. Um, but I am emphasizing that man, human beings on our own power, in our own strength, left to our own devices, are not able to bring us out of the muck of the world. And further, like when you look at the example of Abraham, if we are comparing him to other human beings, he is very commendable. But if we commend compare him to what God's intention for humanity is, he's really stuck in the muck like the rest of us. And you can see that by looking at some of the sadder examples of his life, like uh, the episode with Hagar and Ishmael, the way he treated right. Hagar and the way he sent away his, his own son, um, those kinds of things.
So that means ultimately, um, no matter what good thing we can we can do, and as great as they can be, we can't ultimately save ourselves. And like, where where does that leave us? You know, we can either live in a world where you know we're all gonna do some bad things, um, but as long as we you know live a good life, um, that might be enough. If we're living in terms of relative good and evil like i'm relatively a better person than that like my neighbor you know um for some people that's how they see the world um but i guess with newbigin or the christian deity is that that's not enough um we're all sinners and we all can't save ourselves so how do we kind of go forward from that how do we kind of rectify that thinking of relative good and evil yeah, I mean, um, this is what you're saying kind of goes along with page 40. This is the position of sinful man. He knows he is a sinner to some degree, but he can't save himself. And so the questions, which are not addressed in this chapter, but um, lead to the next chapter, chapter 5. The question is, does God save man from sin? And if he does, how can he do so? Because if sin is a corruption of the will of man, then ultimately sin can only be removed by a change in the will of man. And we know that God has to oppose sin because if he didn't oppose sin, the world would be destroyed. So mm-hmm. in a sense, God's wrath is good. Uh, the example that comes to mind when we talk about like the goodness of God's wrath is the movie Mother. Uh, okay, right. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? Darren, Darren Aronofsky, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with Jennifer Lawrence, right? And um if you've like listened to interviews with the director or whatever you kind of know that in the director's mind at least the house and the woman represent the earth or creation mm-hmm. and the the husband represents god um, right and when you're watching the movie you're persistently angry at the husband because he does not take steps to protect his wife or later on his baby, right after his baby is born. Mm -hmm. Um, He does not take acts to like punish the people who are taking advantage of his wife and wrecking his home. Um, God is not like that father figure in um, the movie Mother. God has wrath. He is wanting to protect his creation his wrath is a good thing it's it's the evidence of his love for creation and his desire to protect it but the question is if man is so bound up with these systems of sin how can he destroy sin how can he show or shower his wrath upon sin without destroying us at the same time that's the question and the answer is the gospel because the gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ, mercy triumphed over wrath, and there there was provided a way for sinners to be reconciled with a holy God. And that's what moves us into chapter 5. 